You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I'm Howard Dory. And I'm Jess Dory. And we host Plotting Through the Presidents. We take deeply researched, deeply irreverent dives into the myths, mysteries, and scandals of the men and women who shaped America. Join us as we dive deep into topics like the undeniable riz of Aaron Burr. The what now? And the odd feeding habits of everyone's favorite founder, John, John Adams? Adams. Subscribe and follow Plotting Through the Presidents now to plot along with us. Find out more at plodpod.com. It's a long way to Tipperary, it's a long way to go, it's a long way to Tipperary, to the sweetest girl I know, goodbye Piccadilly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 131. This week, a big thank you goes out to Steinus, Liber, and Woody for choosing to support the podcast over on Patreon at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar. They have now unlocked access to special members-only episodes, just like you can over at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar. Last week saw the beginning of unrestricted submarine warfare for the Germans, and throughout the first few months of the campaign, it went quite well, with April 1917 being the best month of the entire war for the German submarines. However, no act, especially one involving hundreds of thousands of shipping tons being sent to the bottom of the ocean, goes without a response. This episode, we will start by looking at what the British did to respond to the new U-boat threat. This will then lead us into discussions about convoys and why it took the British so long to start using them. We will end this episode by talking briefly about the last 12 months of the war for the German U-boats, and unlike 1917, 1918 would not be a happy time for the German sailors. One type of response from the British had nothing to do with stopping or slowing the pace of U-boat attacks. Instead, it focused on reprisals. The Germans had made it very clear the hospital ships, even those marked as such, would not have free reign in the English Channel. They did this because they believed that the British were using these ships to ferry troops, guns, and ammunition to the continent. They also claimed to have evidence of this fact after seeing khaki-clad men on deck, and they would go about repeating this fact to anybody who would listen. While the evidence may have been a bit dubious, the constant repetition by the Germans and the other actions of the British up to this point in the war meant that many neutral countries believed the Germans instead of the British. The British did not really care, though, and the British would respond to these attacks not at sea but in the air, and I'll let Edwin Gray from his book The U-Boat War, 1914-1918, explain. Quote, these wanton attacks brought forth various reprisals, which showed sadly that the Allies were equally capable of terror tactics when aroused. 
On April 14th, bombers raided Freiburg in the Black Forest in an attack that killed civilians as a measure of reprisal, and the French Navy began carrying German officer hostages aboard their hospital ships to prevent further attacks. Never never loath to exploit terror, the Germans responded by exposing triple the number of French officer prisoners in the firing line on the Western Front. Apart from propaganda, the reprisals achieved nothing, and after a while, both sides appear to have come to a tacit understanding that the tit-for-tat policies had to cease. End quote. Beyond reprisals, the British government responded to the U-boat attacks in three ways. First, through the Ministry of Food and Food Production, they, reduced the, they tried to reduce the consumption and increase production on the home front. This basically meant doubling down on the policies that they had already been pursuing, at least since the department had been created under the Board of Agriculture in early 1917. The second policy was to make sure that neutral shipping was still available to them. Last week, we discussed that one of the goals of the U-boat campaign was to scare neutral shipping off the seas due to the fear of the U-boats, and this did in fact work. Countries like Norway, Denmark, and Sweden started to refuse to sail from British ports, but the British needed those ships on the seas and trading with British merchants, and so they threw some of their muscle around. They essentially held neutral ships hostage and would not allow them to leave or return home until they were replaced by other vessels and their cargoes. If the countries continued to make much of a fuss, the British threatened to use their blockade to prevent supplies from reaching the neutral countries at all, which they were already proving capable of doing. Basically, they were bullies. The third action that was taken was to begin pressuring the Navy to enact convoys, which they did not do immediately. Before we get to convoys, we have to take a look at the situation in the Royal Navy, specifically around destroyers. Now, destroyers are not the biggest, strongest, or most glamorous ships, but they served a crucial purpose. One of these purposes was to guard against submarine attacks. At this task, the destroyers were the best that the British had to offer, with the ability of destroyers to destroy submarines on the surface and to dodge torpedoes with their speed and maneuverability, and later in the war to engage submarines with depth charges. Not every single submarine had hydrophones or depth charges, but they were slowly being rolled out. The issue that the British had was that there were simply not enough destroyers. There were a total of 260 operational destroyers in the Navy, but 100 of those were assigned to the Grand Fleet at Scapa Flow. The remaining 160 had to secure the channel crossings, patrol the coastlines, and protect merchant shipping. Like any other ship, they could not stay at sea indefinitely, and much like the U-boats, a certain percentage would always be in port getting repairs or provisions. The final issue was that the destroyers were oil-burning ships, but the fuel oil reserves in the British Isles were much lower than was hoped, partially due to the U-boat sinking of the tankers. The destroyers tasked with guarding merchant ships did the best they could, but there was a lot of ocean to cover, and a lot of ships on that ocean to protect. As with other events in 1917, the United States proved to be a great asset for the British, The United States Navy had sent William Sims to London after war had been declared to liaise with the Royal Navy. When he arrived, he was greatly concerned about the submarine threat, but he knew that the Americans could help. He cabled Washington and said that the best way to help the British immediately was to send any available destroyers to Europe to help guard the merchant vessels. He convinced those in Washington that it would be these destroyers that would keep the Allies in the war, until the American army could arrive at least. 
he was told that six destroyers would be dispatched immediately with more to follow. This may seem like a small measure. Six destroyers isn't much of a force. But it represented the tip of the iceberg and a huge difference in policy between the United States Army and Navy. Sims was a believer, and eventually the rest of the Navy was convinced that the United States Navy did not need to be an independent fleet in Europe. Instead, it should try to reinforce the Royal Navy. The British were, of course, a huge fan of this idea because it meant that the United States naval ships would work closely with and be under the command of the Royal Navy for the rest of the war. While eventually that would mean a large force of vessels with the Grand Fleet, for the moment it just meant that in the middle of 1917, American destroyers would begin arriving in Britain, and they would be put under the command of Admiral Sir Louis Bailey, a British admiral. By July, there would be 37 destroyers under his command with more to follow, and they would begin making a difference almost immediately. One of the reasons that destroyers were so important was because of the ongoing discussion about the convoy system. Early in the war, the Royal Navy hated the idea of convoys, and much of their concern was around the fact that it meant putting so many eggs into one basket, and if a U-boat found the convoy, they could wreak havoc. Admiral Jellicoe would write as much in his book The Submarine Peril. Quote, we frequently discussed the possibility of instituting a convoy system. We visualized the lossage which might occur where an inadequately protected convoy successfully attacked and the prospects we had of providing sufficient protection to make their system reasonably safe was beyond our capabilities. End quote. The convoys would also have to steam slowly, only as fast as the slowest ships, which would mean that many ships were, would be spending more time in the danger zone than they had to by themselves. Even though the Navy would remain resistant to the idea of convoys, the complete trouncing of merchant ships in April 1917 meant that they could not resist the calls for a convoy system. At the very least, it had to be tried. And if it worked, then great. And if not, then it couldn't be any worse than what was happening right now. On April 27th, the Admiralty would give in to the pressure, and on that day, an experimental convoy was set up that would sail from Gibraltar to the English Channel. There would be 16 merchant ships, and they would sail in three columns, and on the entire journey, there would be two armed merchant ships and three armed yachts. Once the convoy was in known dangerous territory, it would then be joined by six destroyers. Sims, the American, would say that the goal of these destroyers would be to, quote, establish a square mile of the surface of the ocean in which submarines could not operate, and then move that square along until port was reached, end quote. On May 10th, the ships left Gibraltar, and on May 20th, they entered Plymouth, unharmed. The next test was for a transatlantic convoy, which was again a success. By the end of July, there had been 21 convoys, with a total of 354 ships that had crossed the Atlantic, with only two of those ships being sunk by submarines. Carl Donitz, uh, later the commander of the German Navy in World War II, would talk about part of the reason for this. Quote, The oceans at once became bare and empty. For long periods of time, the U-boats, operating individually, would see nothing at all, and then suddenly up would loom a huge concourse of ships, 30 or 50 or more of them, surrounded by a strong escorts of warships of all types. End quote. What, became, what became apparent quite quickly, to both sides, was that when the ships were in convoys, it became incredibly difficult for the U-boats to find them. The Royal Navy had greatly overestimated the ability of German U-boats to find concentrated ships in the middle of the ocean. 
Winston Churchill would write that, quote, the size of the sea is so vast that the difference between the size of a convoy and the size of a single ship shrinks to, com in comparison, almost to insignificance, end quote. By taking 20 ships and putting them in a convoy, the Germans found it 20 times harder to find anything at all. Overall, the convoys would be incredibly successful, and they would begin the events that would see the effects of the U-boats, if not drop to nothing, then at least reduce in impact to almost insignificance. Even though the British were now making the right moves, the U-boat danger did not go away immediately. To make sure that they had merchant ships moving forward, they renewed their efforts to build more. As long as they could build ships faster than the Germans could sink them, everything would be okay. And to do this, merchant vessels were standardized, and 35,000 skilled shipbuilders were recalled from the army. This was a good idea, because in June the U-boats would score their second highest month at almost 700,000 tons. But this would begin to decline rapidly, with just 550,000 tons in July and 500,000 in August. During this time, there was still a good amount of shipping that was sailing outside of convoys, and for these ships, the loss rate was about 14 times greater than those inside convoys. Another interesting fact about these months is that a large portion of the ships attacked by the U-boats were actually hit on their way back to America after dropping off their cargoes in Europe. These ships would still be traveling completely alone until August. The U-boats also tried changing up where they were doing most of their hunting. With convoys sailing over the open oceans, the best chance to sink ships was around the British Isles, before the ships made it to their concentration points. Because of this change in hunting ground, the number of ships sunk within 10 miles of the coast went from 20% of the total to almost 60% during the second half of 1917. For the rest of the year, the total numbers would fluctuate, but they would always be on a downward trend. 350,000, then 450,000, then 300,000, then 414,000. Then in the first five months of 1918, they would average just 325,000. By the end of 1917, even if ships were still being sent to the bottom, the greatest threat was over. I'm Howard Dory. And I'm Jess Dory. And we host Plotting Through the Presidents. We take deeply researched, deeply irreverent dives into the myths, mysteries, and scandals of the men and women who shaped America. The only history podcast where you'll hear never-before-shared stories and details about Thomas Jefferson's deadly ram and the truth about John Quincy Adams and the mole people. Yes! So join us for our newest season premiering February 13th, just in time for President's Day. We're diving into topics like how the first third party in America was founded by murder. Ah, uh, murder. The undeniable riz of Aaron Burr. The what now? And the odd feeding habits of everyone's favorite founder, John, John Adams? Adams. You make him sound like a vampire. <laughs> so whether you love history or you're lying to yourself, Subscribe and follow Plotting Through the Presidents now to plot along with us. Find out more and dive into previous bingeable seasons at plodpod.com.
During 1917, the U-boats, while their raw results were decreasing, also had issues in other areas. As the campaign drug on, the politicians and public began to lose faith that the U-boats could bring about the quick victory that had been promised. The German Navy simply did not have an answer to what the British response had been to their submarine tactics. The American destroyers, which began to play a larger and larger role in covering the Western approaches, began to be equipped with hydrophones and depth charges, and they became more and more efficient sub-hunters. The convoy system had also made it almost impossible for them to even find the ships, let alone sink them, and the protection offered by those destroyers began to cause irreparable harm to the U-boat fleet. In the first half of the year before convoys were introduced, just 20 U-boats were sunk. However, that number would be ballooned to 43 in the second half of the year. In 1918, it would get far worse. This caused the obvious problem of just not having enough U-boats on patrol, and it was impossible to increase production to compensate for the greater losses. But the less obvious problem was the degradation of the crews. Up until late 1917, the Germans had always tried to staff new submarines with at least some veteran crew to help bring the newer members of the crew up to snuff. However, this would soon become impossible, with veteran petty officers a rare breed by the end of the year. This meant that what U-boats could be manufactured were often manned by reserve crews with almost no experience and led by officers who were in much the same position. In early 1918, the grouping of submarines together was attempted, a tactic that would become much more famous in 1940. But by that point, there simply were not enough U-boats to both have these groups, or packs as they would be known, and also to cover all the sea lanes, which resulted in the groupings feeling counterproductive. The Atlantic and North Seas were not the only areas that U-boats were operating during the war. The submarines also operated in the Baltic and Black Seas, along with their most profitable hunting ground, the Mediterranean. It would be here that over 660,000 tons of shipping would be sunk during 1916 alone. When the unrestricted campaign began in 1917, there would be a total of 27 German and 15 Austrian U-boats in the area. One benefit that these boats had were the more constricted nature of the Mediterranean Sea when compared with the more expansive Atlantic. This, when combined with the fact that the Med would always be a secondary theater for the British, meant that in April 1917, the British and French took the drastic step of routing a good percentage of the traffic that normally would have went through the Suez Canal to instead go around the Cape of Africa, taking the increase in travel time to avoid the worst of the U-boat killing grounds. One group of ships that could not leave the area completely were military vessels, and in the Med they found life far more difficult than in other theaters. During the course of the first three years of the war, seven battleships were sunk, three French and four British. The tide did not begin to turn after convoys were introduced. They were a natural fit for the more constricted sea lanes in the Med, which already bunched ships up in certain areas. With the increased defenses from destroyers, the U-boats found life more difficult, but they continued to sink ships at a pretty good clip. That is not to say that the Germans did not have problems. Beyond just the convoy system that would arrive later in the war, their biggest issue revolved around logistics. The Germans and Austrians never imagined that they would have so many U-boats in the Mediterranean, and they simply did not have the facilities to support them all. There were several instances where U-boats had to sail the 4,000 miles back to Germany for more expensive overhauls, which took them out of the hunting grounds for extended periods. This was a problem that they would never solve during the war, and it hit the Germans where it hurt the most, the number of U-boats available in sinking ships at any given time. 
As it would turn out, 1917 would be the most successful year for the U-boats, by a pretty good margin. But the war did not end in 1917, and 1918 would be a very different ballgame. They were still sinking ships, no doubt about it. 320,000 tons in February, 340,000 tons in March, 280,000 in April, 295 in May. But now it was coming at great cost. Three U-boats were lost in February, seven in March, seven in April. They were also finding ships less frequently, thanks partially to the convoy system. In early 1917, the U-boats had found and sunk a ship every two days that they spent out on patrol. By mid-1918, that was up to 14 days. This was putting a greater and greater strain on the men and their machines, with the Germans needing to keep more boats out longer to make up losses and reduced productivity. They needed more boats, but that was not going to happen fast enough. No matter how long they stayed out, no matter how many ships they sank, the truth was that by April 1918, it didn't matter. The American and British shipyards were outbuilding what was lost by a good margin, and even if the Germans could have doubled, tripled, quadrupled their U-boats, it may not have mattered, even if they were able to find more men to crew them. In January 1918, the, the Navy had to move away from its volunteer system, since it simply could not handle the number of crews that were needed. Instead, for the rest of the war, men would be drafted into the U-boat service. Edwin Gray describes the outlook of Admiral Scheer in mid-1918. Quote, Even Scheer was showing signs of despair by now. Many a U-boat with a splendid and experienced crew did not return, he lamented in his memoirs. The results of the last months have shown that the successes of individual boats has steadily decreased. The lure of victory, which had continued to burn bright in his eyes even in these final desperate weeks, was at last growing dim. Lowering his sights to the realities of the situation, he no longer sought victory, only a tolerable peace. While the leaders and many within the submarine service were determined to continue fighting, on October 20th they lost their Belgian ports, which they had used to base U-boat operations out of, making everything more difficult. Back in Berlin, the feelings of the civilian government were at a breaking point. It was clear now that the situation was deteriorating out of control. On October 21st, the U-boats were informed that they were no longer allowed to attack passenger ships. It was hoped that this would help the new German government to gain favor with the Americans. What had started as a campaign with high hopes of ending the war quickly ended with the whimper, with the war already lost. A more immediate danger awaited the German Navy. By October 1918, all of the main fleet bases were taken over by mutineers and revolutionaries. We will dive into this more in later episodes, but at a basic level, the men of the German Navy had decided that they were done with the war, and they wanted it to end, so they revolted. They set up soldier and sailor councils in the ports and took over control. Commodore Mickelson, in charge of the U-boats in the German ports, gathered up every submarine he could and sailed out to sea with him. They hoped to find a place to go that was unaffected by the revolutionaries that now control all the ports, but they were searching in vain. A similar fate awaited the U-boats that were coming out of the Mediterranean. On October 20th, the Ottoman Empire surrendered, which meant that the four U-boats in Constantinople had to find a new home. They were fueled and began to make their way back to Germany. In this voyage, they were joined by other U-boats, who were also trying to make their way back home from Austrian ports, through Gibraltar, and up through the Atlantic. There were many smaller U-boats which had to be scuttled because they did not have the range, but 13 managed to find their way out to the Atlantic. 
After their long voyage home, a lengthy and dangerous one, they arrived to find the naval bases fully under control of the revolutionaries. Gustav Seiss, a senior officer aboard one of the Mediterranean boats, would recall that, quote, the red flag of revolution floated over Kiel. Mutiny reigned aboard the ships in harbor, and the red flag flew from mastheads. But the 13 U-boats of the Kataro base came into harbor in war formation and with war flags fluttering in the breeze. End quote. When the war was over, the U-boats were not in an ambiguous position. The British, French, and Americans wanted them, and they wanted them destroyed. Every U-boat that could put to sea was ordered to report to Harwich, England, the first arriving on November 20th, all flying the flag of surrender. For the moment, the U-boat threat was no more. In total, over 5,000 men would lose their lives while serving on U-boats. Most of these were on the 178 German U-boats that were either destroyed by enemy action or in accidents. 122 U-boats would survive to surrender to the British in late 1918. In total, they had sunk somewhere between 12 and 13 million tons of shipping, an impressive number that also came at a human cost, with 15,000 sailors and passengers killed on those ships. Regardless of how much damage the U-boats did, in the end, it didn't matter. They had one goal, one purpose, and they'd failed at it. They'd been put to sea with the goal of cutting the British Isles off from trade to strangle the country into submission. While millions of tons of shipping were sunk, this was not achieved, and because of this failure, it's completely valid to question the decision to send them on their unrestricted campaign in the first place. In my mind, I've come to the conclusion that it actually probably was the right call. Working with the assumptions that the Germans made, even if they were mistaken assumptions, it seemed like the only way that they could make a real difference in the war, and if they could have achieved their goals, they would have. If they could have cut the British off, if they would have, you know, greatly affected the situation on the British home front, it could have won them the war. And in reality, it didn't make the situation any worse for Germany. People were already starving in the streets, and in fact, in the short term, it gave a big boost of morale on the German home front, something that was desperately needed. The Germans were optimistic about the ability of the U-boats to accomplish their goal, so they took a chance, and they rolled the dice. It just happened to come up snake eyes. But if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And indeed, the Germans would try again 20 years later, only to fail again. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode as we look at how America came into the war in 1917. Goodbye, Piccadilly. Farewell, let us dwell. It's a long, long way to Tipperary.